Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. about mate pour yourself uh, a wine i'd, I'd rather back. he didn't he's annoyed me yeah. to be honest with you <laughs> so uh dom first of all straight in you mentioned you went to school with radiohead you also went to school with the world's most famous terrorist osama, osama, bin, laden. osama bin laden not the same school because also i went to school with tim henman and if all three <laughs> went together we'd have quite a, a powerful school for the young and gifted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. now i went to the same school as radiohead and tim henman in one but i didn't realize i'd been to school with osama bin laden till after Trigger Happy, I did a show called Dom Jolly's Excellent Adventure. Because what I'm really into, when I started, I didn't want to be a comedian. Some of you might say I'm not a comedian, never have been. But that was not my interest. I fell into that. So the moment I got any sort of fame, I thought, great. This gives me the opportunity to blag foreign trips. And I got offered this thing, which is great telly. They basically said, uh, Dom, we'd like to do this show called Dom Jolly's Excellent Adventure. I go, oh, is it my series, the whole thing? And they went... Uh, no, we've already made the series. And basically it turned out they basically commissioned the whole series. They had a different celeb in each show. Someone had pulled out. And they didn't quite want to tell you, but I found out the truth. And it was basically... Uh, who'd done it? Um, anyway, but the, 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 the person who pulled out was Macaulay McCulkin. 
and uh, he'd pulled out because of drug reasons or whatever. Of course. Yeah, yeah. And the other people in it were Minnie Driver. Um, who's the football thug? Vinnie Jones. Vinnie Jones, he'd done yeah. It. Yeah, like that. And, I wa- and I'd watched some of the stuff, and it was a bit weak. Minnie Jones, a Minnie Driver had said, I want to swim with sperm whales. No joke, literally, want to swim with sperm whales. So they'd flown her out to Tahiti or whatever, got her on a boat. You've got Minnie Driver in a, in a bikini, not a bad thing. There's the sperm whale. She dives in. That's 10 minutes of the show. And they're like, fucking hell, we've got nothing else. <laughs> Vinnie Jones, who is a really keen and very dull fisherman, had said, I just want to fish somewhere weird. So they said, great, we'll take you to Mongolia, where there's this apparently amazing fish you can do. And he goes, yeah, all right, whatever. What they hadn't told Vinnie, and he's not a big geography man, was that Mongolia is fucking massive. So there's some great outtakes that I've seen of Vinnie being, because they've got to fill the hour, of Vinnie just being driven over 2,000 miles of flat Mongolian <laughs> plateau. And he's going, listen, if this fucking fish doesn't turn up. So by this stage, the whole series was a bit fucked. And they said to me, would you like to do it? Uh, frankly, we'll take anything you can give us, because it's like we've got to put the show out. There's one left. Macaulay Culkin's just overdosed again. You've got to do something. And so they said, what would you like to do? And I said, well, I'd like to... And I thought, fuck, where can I blag? And I said, well, in the old days when I grew up in Lebanon, we used to go into Syria on expeditions. So I'd love to do one of those again, thinking, yeah, that'll do, and that'll be fine. So that's what we did. And we started off in Beirut, but the whole point was start in Beirut, go into Syria. And so literally, while we were in Beirut, I thought, well, might as well just use this as an opportunity to wander around. And I used to go to school, before I went to school here, for two years, when I was six to eight, I went to this Quaker school near my house, in the hills above Beirut, called Brumana High School. It's a Quaker school set up by Quakers from Doncaster. I don't even ask me how it ended up there, but it was. And I just thought, well, fucking great. I haven't been back to my old school. I said I'd like to do that. They said it's organized. We turn up at the school. We start walking around. I'm playing the big I am, like, hello. Hello, kid. I used to be here and stuff. And suddenly this woman comes out. She's fucking so angry. And she's the headmistress. And she's like, what are you doing? No one's giving you permission to film here. What are you doing here? And I'm like, I'm honestly not that, you know, up myself normally. But I'm like, excuse me, lady. But um, I'm kind of a big deal in the uh, old school people here in the sense you have no one. And she just looks at me and goes, what? And I go, well, you know, I'm sort of quite well known in England. And I'm just doing a little trip around the old school. And she goes, we have much more famous people than you. And I was like, yeah, like who? And she goes, Osama bin Laden. (laughs) And I went, okay, fair enough. Absolutely fair. And it's absolutely true. And then she realized what she'd said. And if you're trying to sell a Quaker school to, like, potential kids, you don't go, um, yeah, yeah, Quakers are all about pacifists. They're famously pacifists. So if you've got a potential parent going around, they're going, and what sort of old boys do you have here? And you go, well, I don't know if you know Dom Jolly. Nope. Um, Osama bin Laden, like that. So she immediately, like, closed the whole thing down. I was like, fuck, if I can get a picture, like a school picture. So Osama was 10 years older than me. So in 1974, when I was there, he was 16, I was 6. And I thought, so we were there for one year together. And I was like, if they've just got one school photo where it's me and Osama, I can milk that as I'm still trying 20 years later. Nothing. They got rid of every fucking picture. And they just burnt them all. Honestly, I looked up Friends Reunited. Nothing. Like the guy just disappeared off the map. But yeah. What? I think it's unlikely he'd have had a beard at 16. And actually, there's a famous photograph of, of the Bin Laden's uh, because they were a massively like rich 
Saudi Arabian family. And it was very normal for Saudi Arabians to send their kids to Lebanon because Lebanon was technically a Middle Eastern country, but frankly, it was just full of cocaine and whores, as I hope this is later. And um, <laughs> so it was an easy place to go. And there's a very famous picture of the Bin Laden brood in 1977 in Stockholm. And they literally looked like the Partridge family, like the worst dressed stuff. So no, I think he would have looked like a really tall... I can't remember the name of the person in the Partridge family, but Mr. Partridge, one of them. So yeah. Uh, who would like to hear some behind-the-scenes, off-camera, untold, trigger-happy TV stories? Yeah? Dom? Trigger-happy trigger TV. Tell yeah. us about some of your favorite sketches and the moments behind you know, the camera stuff, which we wouldn't have seen on the, the show itself, but memories that come to mind for you of well, I mean, obstacles that you overcame? Or Yeah. I mean, I think, I think one of the things that's the, that really brings me back is when we first did Trigger Happy and no one knew who the fuck we were and we were on a tiny budget and we just had a lot of fun and we filmed for a year we had to get consent forms that is the problem so every time I've done any joke with someone and you film them and I think it's fair enough you have to then go up afterwards and say look you know that guy who just did that could you sign a piece of paper so we actually got quite good at that so we'd have a very good looking girl a very sweet guy we got quite good at, descending, depending on who it was, sending them in, because otherwise you couldn't use it. And I have three series of Trigger Happy that were way better than what went out that I've never been able to use, because the people just said no. And I always assumed that people would say no, because I'd say no if some cunt came up and however much he said, oh, it's not about you, you did just make me look like a twat, and I'm not going to sign and allow you to then put it on telly. But actually, the real reason why most people don't sign, is there is an extraordinary amount of people wandering around Britain at any time with people that are not their wife or their other half. And, <laughs> but it is astonishing. And, and, and it's crazy, and you don't even think about it. So, and the great example was, I hate the mobile phone, I'll be honest with you. Mobile phone was a kind of thing that happened, and it kind of allowed me to interrupt things I hated, but it became this thing on its own that, even if you hadn't seen Trigger Happy, you knew about the mobile phone. So whatever, I'm not going to slag it off. It's my Rod Hull and Emu. But one of the things that we did, uh, we took over the Prince Charles Cinema in Leicester Square. And I love the Prince Charles Cinema because it allowed me to do anything I wanted. And we filmed so many stuff in there. So one of the ideas was I put an infrared camera. So it would be like here. This is the screen. And we put an infrared camera here filming out. And it was an afternoon. So we didn't expect too many people. And the joke was when people came in, sat down to watch the film. And this is how nice I was. I wasn't even going to interrupt their film. Once the trailers had started, and they were looking like they were watching the film, suddenly I stand up with a big mobile. Hello! No, I'm in the cinema. It's rubbish. And I fuck off. Everyone's like, ugh, like that. Great. Like, it was a really low-rent joke. So the thing finishes, and then someone comes up, because we're nice, and goes, ladies and gentlemen, sorry for that. Just to let you know, the film's about to start... Um, we're going to pay for your film anyway. That's how nice we were, yeah? We're not wankers. And, uh, but just, if there is any problem, we have been filming that. If anyone does have an issue, please let us know. And we thought it would be no problem at all. <laughs> and this is 2 o'clock in the afternoon, yeah? Eight couples stood up, <laughs> looked around, wandered out nervously. There were eight fucking couples that were having a little bit of a dirty weekend in there. So that was a huge problem for Trigger Happy. And even when I went on to the show that I... I don't want to mention, called Full Britannia, which is on ITV, which was basically a show that still had good ideas, but then 
ITV thought, fuck, let's put a laughter track on and turn it into Beatles about. But whatever. There were bits in it that I really loved. There was a great one where I'm this vicar. And basically, I'm a very racist vicar. Well, I'm not a racist vicar. I'm just a, a cunt who's a vicar. But because I'm a vicar, I can sort of say things in that English way. Where are you from? Australia. Ah, oh, a bunch of convicts. Good to see you're still here. You know, all that stuff. And people just put up with it. So we were in Borton on the Water. And the joke was, I got a guy who we'd hired to play guitar on one of the little bridges in Borton on the Water. And I'm chatting away to an American going, hello, where are you from? America. Good, good, good. You know, shame we let you go, but you're doing a very good job sort of thing. And suddenly this guy starts playing. And I go, hang on a second, give them something so they can't walk away. Grab the guy's guitar, smash it to pieces, come back, and then just go, sorry about that. Uh, just got to keep the, keep the village quiet. And so this was all going very well. And suddenly this guy comes out of nowhere, and he looks like your classic cabbie, shaven head, little medallion. He's so angry, he's gammoning up, and he's right in my face. And there's part of me thinking, oh, it'd be great telly if he punches me. But also I'm thinking, fuck, it's going to hurt because he looks like really tough. And he's like, if you were a fucking vicar, I would fucking punch you in the mouth. What you did there was fucking insane. And I'm, I'm, I keep it as long as I go, and I think he is going to stab me. So I go, right, just to let you know, and someone takes him aside and goes, really sorry, we're filming. And he calms down. Someone goes, and that's Dom Jolly. He goes, what? Dom Jolly, I fucking love Trigger Happy. He goes, that's not fucking, because I've got prosthetics. He goes, that's not fucking Dom Jolly. I, go, I swear. He goes, no, fuck. He comes up, he hugs me. He goes, mate, I just behaved like such a cunt. I am so sorry. And I'm like, no, no, it's absolutely fine. It's great. It was really good telly. He goes, fuck, I'm such an idiot. Fuck. And then he suddenly goes, you're not filming, are you? And I go, no, it's just what I do at weekends. Of course I'm fucking filming. And then he goes, Ah, you can't show this. I go, why? And he points this really nervous-looking woman standing there and goes, it's not the missus, is it? <laughs> and I go, what? And he goes, not the missus. I'm so pleased that I haven't been fucking stabbed. Yeah, I'm going, look, don't worry about it. We'll just do another take. We'll never use this. He goes, you fucking swear, yeah? Because I will cut you if you use it. And I'm like, so this thing is going up, down, up, down, like that. So in the end, we're like, everyone goes, I absolutely swear, there's no way we'd ever, and we wouldn't, we wouldn't, you know, I'm just not that much of a cunt, and also legally, it's not possible. I wouldn't show that. So then three days later, he obviously panics again, he's having anxiety dreams, and he's, he starts ringing up going, just, I want to let Dom know, yeah, that ever gets shown, I will fucking kill him. <laughs> and, I'm like, and I'm like, part of me thinks, I really want to put it out. I just, but I won't. But anyway. So that was the main memory. A lot of sort of, Hiding and uh, murder threats. Did... <laughs> oh, fuck! <laughs> he was on the guest list for tonight. Um, and did, here he is tonight. <laughs> did you ever get, like, the fear? Because the, the documentary that you mentioned, Dom Jolly's Excellent Adventure, the reason me and Dom met is because I knew the director, Matt. I did a Q&A with him for the New Model Army thing. And he said to me, he was like, the thing with Dom is he's, like, he's fearless. He's one of these people. If the camera's on... You just you're in the zone, and you. Did you ever have moments where you were hesitant or you were afraid? Because it seems like, from our point of view, watching that show, as soon as you don whatever costume or prop you had, you were just out there, and you were going to go as far as that sketch was going to go. But that's that's the weird thing that to me, I, it's only looking back that I kind of analysed it myself because everyone assumes because they've seen Trigger Happy and things like that that I would just have no worries about doing anything. But genuinely, the idea. And that was, again, coming back to being called a comedian. 
like, you know, moment trigger happy happened. Everyone I knew was like, hey, Dom Jolly's going to be my best man. My idea of being best man, standing up, being Dom Jolly and chatting, like, fills me with fear. Even this is nerve-wracking-ish, but I've got old enough to be able to do it. But when I'm... I, I suppose I only realized it. I just... When I'm someone else... So when I... And that's what's weird, because often the characters in Trigger Happy, it's not someone else. I'm not, like, being a lovey going, and now I'm going full Stravinsky, and I'm... You know, it's at least... Stras- what's, the, what's the acting college? Lee Strasberg or whatever. But it's not method... It's just that, actually, firstly, if I am going to go up to someone, pretend to be a fucking scout, and I'm dressed like a paedophile, and asking them to give, you know, to judge me on my homoerotic dancing, what you can't do is suddenly halfway through start laughing. Because Great then character, a, yeah. Well, A, because then they think, hang on, are you taking the piss? So there's a much higher chance of you being punched. But also you realise what a pointless thing it is you're doing. So I kind of weirdly, the moment I became a character... I kind of committed totally, but mostly because it was safer for me, but also because it wasn't me. It's, I can't explain. It was kind of like being a snail. <laughs> I, I, I kind of, there is nothing that would, for, for someone like me, I mean, the idea that I could dress as a snail in a full brown tight body costume with full snail costume and crawl across the road slowly, I don't even think about that. That's absolutely fine. But if I had to stand up and do a corporate gig for 7-Up, I'd shoot myself. And it's because it's not me. It is kind of like out of body. So I can't explain it really. But yeah. But I do definitely commit to it. Did you ever enjoy certain characters more than others? Like, were, were there any that, as soon as you donned that mask or that costume, you're like, oh, I'm home now. This is my favorite. Well, I mean, it's quite weird because one of the things that really, there are two things that annoy me the most. People go, who chose the music in Trigger Happy? I'm like, fuck you. I chose every fucking second of music in it. But the other thing is, oh, do you help write Trigger Happy? And like Trigger Happy, or all the shows I do, are not written. Like, it's ad-libbed. And, and, and it's kind of, how could it not be? Because I'm going up to people. So even if I had written something, when you meet someone, they haven't got the script, so you don't know what you're going to do. But there's a real issue in England with ad-libbing because it, it it's becomes that thing called improv. And improv to me, I'm just like, the moment someone says they do improv, I'm like... Go fuck yourself, because it's someone saying, oh, look, pretend I'm stuck in a lift with John Sessions. It's just drama student shit. Whereas in America, improv isn't a dirty word. Like, it started with people like Tina Fey. We didn't start with them, but Tina Fey and um, Parks and Rec, Spinal Tap, Curb Enthusiasm, that's all improv. What it means is you kind of, you get to know that the funniest stuff comes from riffing. That's what I call it, is riffing. So for me, Trigger Happy and all the shows I've done like that, it's so exciting because I genuinely don't know what I'm going to say. And it really... I mean, Trigger Happy itself, <laughs> when Trigger Happy became big, me and Sam, and we did it, we had no idea what we were doing. Sam... Sam had, was the director, the guy who'd film it. Well, he wasn't the director because we didn't direct. It yeah, was just yeah. me and Sam. Sam, and I got given a chance to make a pilot. My girlfriend took me to a pub in Primrose Hill and I was saying to her, it's fucking insane. They've said, make 20 minutes, but I can't afford to get a camera crew. And the barman was like cleaning the glasses. He goes, I can do that. I go, what? And he leaned over, he goes, I can do that. I can go, do what? And he goes, what you're saying, I'll film it. So I said, fine, turn up on Monday. And he'd never fucking used a camera before in his life. But, but because Sam was like that, he'd read the manual and he blagged it. And we happened to have the same sense of humor. So we were both blagging it in that way. But the look of Trigger Happy, 
like Sam was then offered these massive ad jobs. And they're going, what we really want is that kind of... That gritty aesthetic. That gritty yeah. indie star. And I go, what do you mean gritty indie star? It was like we had a shit camera and it wobbled because all of Trigger Happy was me trying to make Sam laugh. And, and that's what you realise, that the moment you try and analyse something or try and make what it is, then that's when it becomes shit. Not that it has now, obviously. It's all still brilliant, but yeah. Um, let's go to World Shut Your Mouth, because that for me is the, the pinnacle for me of your hidden camera work. I love that show. Pinnacle. The pinnacle. 18 years ago. The that's peak. It. I peaked. Uh, the, the hidden camera work. Thanks a lot. The hidden Thanks camera work. So all the new you, stuff just You just agree with me back you just agreed with me backstage. Yeah, I do. Yeah. <laughs> it is, right? And yeah, it is. Y- you say in your book in The Dark Tourist, you're like probably the biggest and greatest waste of the UK's taxpayers' money is the idea that you got to convince the BBC. Well not the taxpayers' money, but yeah, so when Trigger Happy was at its peak, uh, Channel Four just wanted me to make more tr- uh, more Trigger Happy. And I kind of still in my mind like, I didn't really want to be a comedian. I, I'd fallen into Trig Abbey, and I realized I was good at it. But in my mind, I was a bit like a band. Like, I loved music more than comedy. And I thought, all cool bands. So I was doing a Radiohead. It's the same thing. It was like, fuck this shit. Stop making this really successful program that I'm really good at and gives a lot of people some pleasure. Let's make some really unwatchable stuff and uh, really test how much they like me. And it didn't take long. Everyone went, but it was fine. So I moved to the BBC, and on the BBC, I made two shows called This Is Dom Jolly. And I thought, what does a cunt do when he's had a massive hit and he gets bought by the BBC? You don't understand him. Well, he does a Johnny Vaughan, as I call it. He just decides he's going to have a chat show and behaves like a cunt surrounded by sycophants. So I thought, I'll take the piss out of that. Like a parody idea of that format. Yes, but unfortunately, my idea of a parody... So I did a show called This Is Dom Jolly, and it was a total parody. I mean, I was an utter cunt on it, and that was the point. I thought that everyone knew I didn't wear glasses, so I put glasses on, and I thought everyone would go, see, that's not him. Obviously, everyone had just watched all of Trigger Happy and thought he's in every scene, but I've no idea who he is. And then the first thing they saw of me is, this is Dom Jolly. They thought, this guy is a cunt. <laughs> and, uh, so in my mind, I wanted 20% of people to watch it and go, fuck, this is a car crash. And 80% to think, oh, this is clever. Actually, it was about 90% just thought, God, that trigger happy guy's a massive wanker. <laughs> and uh, so I was sort of in my mind quite proud that I'd taken the Radiohead art ethic too far. But anyway, so just as the BBC deal was spiralling out of control, BBC said you need something that's a hit. So I thought, fuck it, I'm going to have to make another hidden camera show. So I did one called World Shut Your Mouth. And I thought, well, I kind of love traveling, so I thought I'll do a show where I can just travel around the world and they'll pay for it. And again, I kind of didn't play the game, but it's not because I was trying to be a, like artistic or whatever. I just genuinely kind of was trying to react. I was just being an up-my-ass indie twat. But my, my favorite claim to fame is I get this show on BBC One. It's fucking BBC One, 10 o'clock at night. So it's my biggest show I've ever had. And they literally, because you're a trigger happy guy, you know, now I couldn't get on BBC 10, but on BBC One there, they just give you whatever it is. So they don't ask you what you're going to do. So I think, well, if you're not going to ask me, I'm going to do it. So I did two things that I'm really proud of. The first one I'm going to tell you, I'm genuinely proud of. The second one I could have missed. Um, so the first one is, for ages, I'm not very good at kind of thinking about stuff. I just think of something and I go and do it. But I'd had this idea for ages, and I don't know where it came from. It made me laugh. And it just was these words, frighten an Eskimo. 
That's all I had in my mind. And I'd written it on a post-it note. And it just said, frightened an Eskimo. Like I know you, moment. I know you're supposed to call them Inuits or whatever, but, and I know it's all wrong. But it just, there was something about frightening an Eskimo who seemed to live quite chilled lives, not now in global warming, but back then, that was fine. So <laughs> I got given this show by the BBC, and they said, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I'm going to go around the world, doing a sort of trigger-happy around the world. And they said, what's the first thing you can do? I said, I'm going to go and frighten an Eskimo. And they said, off you go. No one asked. So I didn't really do much research. And I flew to Newfoundland, which is an island on the easternmost coast of Canada. And it's basically, if you left Ireland in a potato famine, that's where you would arrive. And actually, that's what's happened. It was full of kind of very drunk people that three generations ago were in Ireland. Nothing really goes on there. It's like the Falklands. But I, in my mind, I, I don't know why I went there. I just thought they had Eskimos. So we turn up there with a the BBC crew, and I remember getting into the airport, and the guy says, what's your reason for visiting Newfoundland? And I said, I'm here to frighten an Eskimo. And he said, we don't have Eskimos here, sir. And I went, oh, never mind. We shall crack on. And we cracked on, and we got into St. John's, got very pissed for a couple of days. And then the producer said, we need to find an Eskimo. So we kept driving, and we drove out. And it's literally a shithole. It's a massive Falklands Island. We drove for five hours, and I was just thinking, I have no idea what I'm doing here. And we drove and drove. And suddenly, we came over this hill, and there was, honestly, it was like fate. There was what I'd imagined. There was this massive frozen lake, and right in the middle was a guy who drilled a little hole, and he looked like Kenny from South Park, and he was sitting there, and I was like, and they were like, fuck, is this it? I go, yes. And they were like, I was like, fuck, this is insane. So I was like, right, we can't fuck this up. So I said, right, one camera go here. And he filmed across the lake. The other guy went around the side, and I said, when I'm ready, I'll start walking. And I brought some symbols with me, because obviously you have to frighten an Eskimo somehow. And I thought, this is actually going to fucking happen. So there's this brilliant moment where I go, you ready? And they go, yeah. You ready? And everyone's going, what the fuck are we doing? And there's just a guy in the middle like this. And I start creeping across the ice towards this Eskimo, just thinking, if you, if you fucking turn around now, I've got nothing else, yeah? Like, there's not going to be another Eskimo here. And I creep for like 100 meters, and I get right up behind him. And I'm literally almost looking at the camera going, <laughs> and I've got these symbols. And then there's a tiny part of me thinking, what, what if he's got a dodgy heart? Like, I could kill him, because in Trigger Happy originally, there's a famous sketch where... <laughs> We thought it'd be funny to call a, um, a chimney sweep. And Sam, the director, gets up the chimney sweep dressed as Father Christmas. And the joke is the chimney sweep turns up. I go, I don't know what it is. It's blocked. He looks up. Father Christmas falls down, runs out. There's the joke. But the first chimney sweep that turned up was about 80. And so we looked at each other. Sam's already up the fucking chimney. And I'm like, well, what if he just has a heart attack? And I have to admit, in these pre-Jeremy Carl days, we were just like, fuck it. If he dies, we'll drag him out, put him in the van, fuck him off. But anyway, so so we've already had this. So I'm in Newfoundland, and I think, it's going to happen. And I just go, wham, like that. And this Eskimo, I'm not sure if he was an Eskimo. They don't have Eskimos. He jumped, literally, so high, I thought he was going to go back in the thing. And I just, what did I do? I just ran away, and I... And I ran, and, and now looking back on the camera, the guy just goes, he jumps he's like that, and then he just looks, and then he just stares like that. I just run. We've had no plan. I run into the van. The other cameraman runs. We all get into the van, and they go, what now? I go, drive, drive! <laughs> and we go back to St. John's, and we just fly away, and we got it. 
And, and it was, it's still one of my favorite things. And then on top of that, I put the, a song called Brilliant Mind by Furniture, which gave it some hipster cred. But still to this day, I think, I know that guy wasn't an Eskimo because the guy in Newfoundland told me there are no Eskimos. But there must have been a moment where when he calmed down and saw these people drive off, he thought, and then went home. And someone must have said, so uh, how was your day, honey? He goes, very, very fucking weird, i got to tell you. So, you know, they've got 50 words for snow. I don't know what they've got for me. But that was, but, but, but that was a proper joke. I mean, I can still defend that as a joke. But my biggest up my own ass was I thought, well, we've got to start the shows, these BBC One big sequel to Trigger Happy with something. And again, it just showed how the Radiohead v. Coldplay thing. So we've been driving around in a van filming stuff for ages. And often there's things that you find funny when you're in the van, like when you're a bit of a gang, that other people probably don't find so funny. And often we'd be driving around and we'd see Westminster Abbey. And we'd go, look, Westminster Abbey. And we'd all go, that is shit. And it was funny. We're like, we're just being downers. So like I Taking that... these beautiful artifacts or monuments. Well, it was and... just us being yeah. contrary goth fucks. Yeah. You know, it's like nothing's good. And I thought, well, hang on. Let's take that to another level. So I don't think I pitched it to the BBC, but I got to the stage where for two weeks, me and four other people flew to the Taj Mahal, Great Wall of China, the Pyramids of Giza, the Grand Canyon... Um, not Benidorm. That was later. That think, is shit. I think, I think we ran out. Anyway, we did those. Anyway, that's good enough. Uh, I think we went to... Oh, we went to Bilbao. I don't know why. That was, like, weird. But anyway, oh, and we went to the Colosseum in Rome. So for two weeks, we flew around the world on the BBC, and I have to say, your penny with your license <laughs> fee. And the joke was... So it started off in the Taj Mahal. We got into the Taj Mahal early at dawn. The perfect shot. It looks so beautiful. And we waited, and I'm standing there in front of the Taj Mahal, and we wait for the first person to come, the other tourist. There's a camera behind, and I just go, ah, the Taj Mahal. And she goes, and this woman just was so good. She was American. She just went, yeah, it's kind of ethereal. And then I just thought, hold it, hold it. And I go, now that is shit. (laughs) And that was it. And I was so up my own ass that if you are going to fly to India... And do it. You think, well, I'm in India. I might as well do a whole lot of other jokes. I was like, no, 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 no. What's really funny about this is it's pure. It's for the beauty. The only thing we should film here is just that. So we did that, and then we went to the Great Wall of China. Ah, the Great Wall of China. That is shit. I mean, it was everything about it was wrong. The pyramids. We had a fucking brilliant time. Four days in between each. So I brought it back, and I genuinely at that stage thought, I'm smelling BAFTAs here, yeah? Someone will be like, Do you know what? I thought Trigger Happy was so childish and ridiculous, but this is pure, pure comedy. Oh, my God. I remember we took it back, and I gave it in. And I remember thinking they'll they'll ring us back the next day going, fuck me, this is amazing. Nothing. Two, three weeks later, I was finally called in to the uh, head of BBC One who'd seen the show, and she just went, I'm afraid we can never show this. (laughs) And... uh, I was like, what do you mean never show this? She goes, we can never show this like this. So I was like, well, I'm sure we can. She goes, no, we can never show this. They did in the end show it out of thing. And then three days later, rather than being fired, I just turned up for work as usual, put my BBC pass in. It didn't work. So I checked again. didn't work again. I ended up having to empty my office. I realized I'd been fired by the BBC. 
and I had to empty my office by getting in on a public tour of the BBC. They do a tour of the studio and then slope off and steal stuff. It, it wasn't great. It wasn't good. It wasn't clever. It was a bit shit, but I've, I'm so proud of that. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Uh, I'm sure you've all got some questions you'd like to ask Dom about. Trigger happy world, shut your mouth, and, and other areas of his career. But Dom, first of all, before we pass over to the crowd, I want to ask you about some of your travel experiences. Um, after the the comedy stuff, you then sort of segued into travel writing and travel program making and the Dark Tourist book that I just recently read for the first time. What? Some of the most... Well, it was released I know, 10 right, years ago. What the fuck taken me a while. I loved it, though. Oh, great. Well, it's good and to see. You said you were my biggest fan. That's why we did this evening. Yeah. But then we find out you haven't even read my book. I know, right? Fuck. Well, that's awkward. She's even going to the bathroom right now. No, she's not. She's dressing room. All oh, right, right. Nice. I like that. Um... Ooh, what was your favourite destination of the six in terms of the experience? The six what? The six destinations in Dark Tourist. So Which you everyone's very aware of. Iran? <laughs> How many people have read the Dark no Tourist? No one's read the Dark Tourist. So the Dark Tourist, you, right? the Dark Tourist is nicked, I have to admit it. So when I was a kid, I read this book by P.J. O'Rourke. And P.J. O'Rourke was, at the time, very cool. He had the best job in the world. He was the foreign correspondent for Rolling Stone. Since then, he's become a rabid Republican, a bit of a cunt. But... That book was amazing. And he just went around the world and went on holidays in places which in the 80s were a nightmare. And I thought, well, growing up in Lebanon, I knew it was a great place, but people didn't do it. So I nicked that for Dark Tourist. So in the Dark Tourist, I went skiing in Iran. I went to North Korea on a coach tour. I went to Iran skiing. I went to Chernobyl for the weekend. It was great. I absolutely loved it. And uh, of all of them, the, the kind of... The link to them all is that they're all places where if, if people go, oh, where have you been? I go, just been skiing in Iran. Everyone goes, oh, my God, that must be so dangerous. And you go, yeah, it's pretty tough, but uh, I'm kind of cool. Actually, the reality is all these places, they're so thrilled to see people that have made the effort to visit there. They're so nice that actually you have a brilliant time. The only difference is North Korea. North Korea 
is the only place I've been that is totally off the fucking charts insane. It's totally, it's the only place in the world that is still cut off from the rest of the world. There's no internet, there's no communication, there's no diversity. Literally, you walk through, there's no black people, there's no disabled people, they've all been executed. And unlike every, no, but not a joke. I mean, it's genuinely a, a sort of homogenous society. And anywhere else you've been, which is properly dodgy, if you went to Russia before the, the you went to the Soviet Union before the Iron Curtain went down, whatever, you'd have the guide who would take you around and people would play the party line. But if you left on your own, people would say, oh my God, and they'd want to know stuff. North Korea, fuck that. They all had drunk the Kool-Aid. They believed it. It's the weirdest place I've ever been. It was like all the colors had been taken out of the, the palette. And you, the, when we landed in Pyongyang, the first thing is you look out and the airport, there was just a massive picture of, at the time, Kim Jong-il, like bigger than the airport building and a row of like soldiers holding AK-47s. It looked like a Bond movie and you think these things don't actually exist. And it got more and more surreal. As we drove into Pyongyang itself, uh, there were people, there, there were people, there were sort of, there were, you saw it was the first time I understood how architecture could be, um, could be oppressive. Like people talk about brutalist architecture or whatever. All of Pyongyang is built to make you as an individual feel tiny. So all those mass, so if you look at any communist country, they have massive squares. So you as yourself standing there feel very small. All the architecture was big and brutalist. It's, the whole thing has made you feel very insignificant. And as we drove in, it was either full of those squares with people doing mass dances or mass music. And it was all about the government keeping people busy. But the thing I couldn't get my head around is that as we were going past, there were a whole lot of people on their knees on the side of the road. And I couldn't work out what they were doing. And we finally made out what they were doing. And they were cutting grass with scissors. And literally with literally scissors. With scissors. And it was kind of funny, but it wasn't funny, because what it was about was the government realized you've got to keep everyone busy. Give them a lawnmower, they'll be done in an hour, and then they'll think, well, this government's a bit about, shit, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Whereas you've got some scissors. So it's kind of funny, but it wasn't funny. I mean, it was insane. And the new book comes out June 13th, The Hezbollah Hiking Club. It does, The Hezbollah Hiking Tell Club. Tell us about the premise of that. Well, the premise of that is that I grew up in Lebanon, as I said, with Osama bin Laden. We were close friends. And... Uh, because I, I grew up in Lebanon, and Lebanon always was this place known as the Switzerland of the Middle East. My brothers and sisters grew up there older than me. It was this amazing country. But I grew up there just as war hit. So I would go from like being in Lebanon in this war zone, being shelled in a basement. Then I'd go to public school. I would you know, bully Radiohead or Tim Henman, do my work, go back. But I never really looked around Lebanon. So I felt really jealous that although I grew up in Lebanon, I didn't know it. And I went back for the Dark Tourist, and I found out about this thing called the Lebanon Mountain Trail. And the Lebanese realized that not many people wanted to go to Lebanon on holiday because they thought there was still a war. So they'd set up this trail, took a 30-day walk through Lebanon. So I thought, I'll do that. And it took me 10 years. But I finally, when I got to 50, I know, it's hard to believe, I got two of my best friends, and we walked across Lebanon from the Israeli border in the south to the Syrian border in the north. I'd like to say it went well. It didn't. We were not prepared. Uh, we were just shouldn't have been on that walk. We were so close to wandering into Syria on various occasions, taking a bad sat-nav. But basically, it's Bill Bryson, if Bill Bryson didn't exist. But he does, and I need to kill him, and then I will be Bill Bryson. But no, it's quite funny. Favourite moment that you could maybe share? Well, my favourite thing is, as a dark tourist, there is a... 
if you do go to Lebanon, uh, you have to visit the Hezbollah Resistance Museum. Now, I thought when someone said go to the Hezbollah Resistance Museum, it was going to be like a couple of containers with some Islamic stuff and anti-Israeli stuff. Oh, no. Hezbollah, who are quite a well-financed group in the south of Lebanon, financed by Iran, and they basically were set up to fight the Israeli invasion of Lebanon. So they had a sort of justification. And when the Israelis left in 2000, they had a lot of war stories. It was like the French resistance. They wanted to say, and they did. Whatever your political view of Israel or Hezbollah, they did fight and fight for their country, and they had these stories. So normally you'd think, okay, just put a plaque up, but someone paid serious money. So we went to this place, and it was a 40 million dollar it was kind of imagine hezbollah set up disneyland it was insane so we turned up there and there's a guy very grim guy called ali with a big beard who was our guide our mickey mouse and he goes please come with us and he took us up first thing we had to do was go to a cinema to see a an orientation film about hezbollah it was literally it was just about 50 it, it was footage of about 50 car bombs going off and then a very loud sort of shout from the leader of, of Hezbollah. Then we went out and were taken to an area called the Abyss where they tied Israeli tank, sh um, uh, Israeli tank uh, barrels into a knot, looked like Banksy, and they'd written, fuck you, Israel, in Hebrew, in confiscated Israeli helmets. And all the time you're there, there are Israeli jets just circling around. And I'm like, Ali... You're never worried that this is literally a big fuck you to Israel. And the moment there's any problem here, you're going to be absolutely killed. He goes, no, no, no. They will never get it here. And I go, why? He goes, because the whole place is hidden. And it was in an oak forest on this hill. And I said, oh, I see. So he goes, so radar cannot go through oak. It just, they had no idea. <laughs> so basically when we got there, I was literally, we were like, great. We were about to leave because we literally thought this place will be, and I'm telling you now, in the next five years, that place will be razed to the ground. The first time is any incentive, they'll do it. And just we're about to leave, I spotted the dark tourist manor from heaven, the gift shop, the Hezbollah gift shop. And I went in and shit you not, it had everything. I don't know, most of you probably have a lot in the Hezbollah gift range. But it had, honestly, it had Hezbollah fucking fridge magnets, it had statues, it had key rings. I took everything. I've got the biggest variety of Hezbollah stuff. And of course, I'm going to leave one of them in my bag next time I go to the States. But um, yeah, but you should go. Fantastic. Oh yeah, North London, Hezbollah, big up. A round of applause for Dom Jolly, ladies and gentlemen. I'm going to come down and join you guys now with a roaming microphone. Are you going to sing now? I'm What's happening? I've had... Uh, I'm going to approach the audience. So if you have a question, Why? pop your hand in the air like this, and I'll give them amplification, Dom. Hi, Dom. How's it going? All right. How's it going with you? Very well, thank See you. See how mate. I talk to the public. <laughs> I'm just very much like you. Uh, there's, there's a program that you did that's lost in my memory somewhere that I saw oh, about... Oh, great. Well, that's going to go somewhere. <laughs> I know, mate. <laughs> uh, it was, I think I saw it about 10, 12 years ago. And it's, um, I think you're in, you might have been in Egypt where you revisited a, uh, like a cave that you'd gone when you were, when you were about 10. Okay. Uh, and you, you inscribed your name on the inside of the cave. Uh, yeah. Where was the location and have you been, been back there since? Thank and you. And what program was it? So we've discussed that earlier, but to be fair, that was the one where I said we went back to Lebanon because of Macaulay Culkin being incapacitated, and we went to Lebanon, uh, went to Syria, and yeah, and I and I did say at the time they say yeah 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 it's fine you can go from Lebanon on this big trip into Syria, but like all telly they said but we need a 
reason? Why are you doing this? And I was like, I don't fucking know. I just want to get on telly and I want to go to Syria. And then I remembered that when I was a kid, we did used to go to this place near Palmyra in Syria. And I remembered literally very strongly going to these caves and drawing my name on it. So I thought, fuck it. They, by the time it's done, it'll go. I said, what I'd really like to do, because obviously it's really troubled me, is I like to go back and try and find where I wrote my name on a cave. You're like, you're a commissioner going, really? Why would you want to do that? But they went for it. They go, that's amazing. Do you think you could find this cave? And I'm just thinking, not a fucking chance. But I'm like, <laughs> definitely. But, but weirdly, when we got to Syria, I did find, I found it very easy and went up. And I was like, fuck, this is a great TV moment. Or was it? I was like, here's the cave where I dream. And I was thinking, does anyone give a shit? But yeah, that's what it was. <laughs> what? That was called Dom Jolly's Excellent Adventure. It's on YouTube. It's good. I watched it the other night. Yeah, but makes me no money on YouTube. Does, does it, it not? No. The DVDs are actually it's on sale not, tonight as well. It's actually back. not. It's not it's available not. anywhere. So fuck it. Watch it. Fuck it. YouTube. Don't watch yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, next question. All right, we're going to go over here. We're going to go on wine as well, so it's going to get better. Would you mind pouring me a little Where glass of vino tinto, Dom? I'm no, going to go over to uh, to comedian Rich Wilson, what? who has a question over here. Hello, Dom. Nice to see you, man. Um, favorite Cure album? Mine is the Head on the Door. Oh, okay. Little bit naff, to be honest with you, uh, with your choice there. That's a, that's a kind of entry-level cure one. For me, it's 17 seconds. I don't want to make you feel bad, but head on the door. Come on, dude. That's like going Duran Duran. And, uh, I feel bad now, because, but, but come on, head on the door. There's no great song on head on the door, is there? 16 different ways. I don't even know that song, but it doesn't sound good. No, head it's on the, the door. One. No, come on, 17 seconds is pure cure. It's got the forest. It's all you need. And 100 days. Yes, sir. I'm going to... In fact, the mic's too short, so just shout. What's your name? What's your question? Project your voice. That's okay. I'm really pleased you asked that question because my entire travel career is based around me going to places that sound dodgy. But if you've been to Russia or Mexico, they sound dodgy, but actually it's fucking brilliant. But, but people that only go on package holidays think, oh, that's a bit hairy. You go, yeah, I'm kind of hard, fancy a shag. But the only place I've genuinely felt so out of my comfort zone and just awful is the Congo. And, 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 and typically, I don't know if you know about the Congo, but there are two Congos. There's what I like to call good Congo and bad Congo. There's the Democratic Republic of Congo. And one of the things you learn when you travel is that anywhere that has the words Democratic Republic is anything but. It's a shithole. North Korea has that, that sort of thing. East Germany was the Democratic Republic. But that's the really dodgy Congo. And that used to be Zaire. I didn't even go there. I went to good Congo, which is the only place, if you're doing a general knowledge quiz, where two capitals face each other over the river. So you have Kinshasa in the dodgy Congo, and you have, thank you, Brazzaville in good Congo. Now, let me tell you, good Congo is not that good. It is a fucking shithole. And so I went there because I wanted to be Tintin, and I wanted to try and find some monsters. And there's supposedly this monster called the Michele Mbembe, which is the blocker of rivers. And there's a river, there's a lake very north in good Congo called Lake Tele, which is, if you look on a satellite thing, is perfectly round. And legend is that there's this kind of Loch Nessie type thing there. I knew, like all these things, they probably didn't exist, but it was so Tintin. I thought, fucking, I'm off there. And also, Tintin famously 
the worst Tintin. It is Tintin in the Congo. Like, you're almost not supposed to read it now, and quite rightly so, because it is incredibly racist. It goes on all those sort of Belgian Congo type stuff. But what no one mentions about Tintin in Congo is the guy kills 196 fucking animals in that. So, I don't know if you've read Tintin in the Congo, but there's a moment where he keeps shooting gazelles, and they keep popping up, and he realizes there's like 50 of them in the bat. There's one where he tries to shoot a rhino, and the bullets bounce off. So Tintin gets in a tree, drills a hole in the rhino, puts dynamite in it, and blows him up. I mean, it's tricky when I was trying to get my kids into Tintin to read them Tintin in Congo. But when I went to, to the Congo, I found out that, A, they were genuinely thrilled that Tintin... They didn't care about the racial elements of it. They were just thrilled that Tintin had put them on the map. Because I've been to other French colonies, well, not French, Belgian colonies, so Cambodia, Vietnam, and Tintin never went there. And I've found, I've literally, they've made fake covers. I've got a collection of covers of Tintin in Vietnam, Tintin in the Congo. So anyway, long story, but the Congo is the place I've felt the most out of control. So the idea was uh, to fly from Brazzaville, took this terrible flight up to the north, landed, then immediately got arrested, and I had to bribe my way out. And it took me three days to get out and pay a ridiculous amount of money. Then took a three-day canoe trip down to this village where they were the people that were looking after this lake. And by this stage, I was like, you know what? I just can't be asked with this, but I've got to keep going. So I get to this village, and I think, this is the problem. I actually, it was about when I was about to get this show for ITV called Full Britannia, and it was quite important to me, and I knew that I had a commissioning meeting the week later. Now, normally, a world traveler is not worrying about this sort of thing, and especially if you're trying to explain to a village in the middle of the Congo why we need to hurry up because someone at the head of ITV is going to commission something. It's not a big deal. But anyway, I was like, look, we've got two days. I've got to get there, get back. I can just make it. So we have to do this literally extraordinary thing where the village sits down, and we have to negotiate how much I'm going to pay them to, for them to take us to their holy lake, which is absolutely fine. And they even bring out this thing called a porte-parole, which is straight out of Tintin, where so that, and we need this with Brexit, so that me and the village don't argue, they had someone who would transmit everything we say. And it was amazing. This guy literally, I'd say, tell him I'm not paying more than $10. And he would go over and say, and then he'd come back and goes, he wants $7,000. And this would go on for ages. And, you know, I'm fine. We played the game, and it took three-quarters of a day, but we finally agreed on 500 euro. It's going to happen. And I said, great, I don't want to push it, but we really need to leave right now because otherwise I've got to get there, get back, get back to Brazzaville, fly back, get my TV show. I know it doesn't bother you in this village, but it's very important. It went mental. They announced they had to then celebrate the acceptance of this deal. And honestly, I've never seen people get more drunk. It was so drunk. It was beyond belief. And it was a good thing in the end because the guy who'd been allocated to be my guide when we went to Lake Telly got so drunk that he attacked me with a spear. This is absolutely true. And had to be tied to a tree by the rest of the village. So there's part of me thinking, this is going to be so good for the book. And it's one of the joys of travel writing is you think, as long as I'm not going to die, this is going to be brilliant for the book. But also part of me thinking, I was literally minutes away from going three days into the jungle with this guy. So... So that's where I was. I literally, in the end, I have to admit, I just gave up and I just ran away, which is something I do a lot in Trigger Happy, but I literally just got in a canoe and just said, fuck this. I'm, I'm not going to do it. I know Michael Palin wouldn't do it. I know Bear Grylls, would, Bear Grylls probably would, but 
and I just fucked off. So the Congo is the most frightening place I've ever been, and I think will always be. Right, we're going to do two more questions. Uh, let's go to... This, no, this guy in the front. This guy here. I think he listens to my Scary Monsters book. You probably know it more than me, and I can't remember it, so yeah, tell that's, me. That's the vibe I'm getting. Yeah, go on. Um, yes, I just want to talk to you. I, you. You mentioned Radiohead one time. I just think funny story is uh, when they at festival, and um, they have problem with instruments, and they spend a long time uh, tuning, you know, like the instruments, and it takes about 10 minutes, and at the end, everybody claps because they think it is a song. Well, that is a Radiohead album, to be honest. Yeah. Every Radiohead album after OK Computer does sound like people warming up and then but you know you can either, oh we've got Radiohead fans but yeah. yes no that's good that's, it's true yeah, thanks. yeah. That means a lot. that's okay I don't like Radiohead either <laughs> it's fine god I feel like we're in a Coldplay support group but we're not was that a question or no it was no. a statement a statement <laughs> I very much agree with no okay. and I think that's great I'd you know we're you doing a meet and greet afterwards you could have told him then no, no. <laughs> he told me that, and I'm very happy with it. He was right. Uh, okay, two more questions. We're going to go you, and then you, and then we're going to go. Uh, yes, sir. No, because uh, weirdly, I'm such a... One of the things about Trigger Happy that I kind of was really... What are all my hidden camera stuff is I grew up on hidden camera. I didn't invent hidden camera. There was candid camera that was quite surreal originally. But then the things I watched when I was a kid was Beatles about. And, and it was like, it just seemed so easy. It was like, find someone, get angry. You know, find someone who loved their garden, put a fucking public toilet in their garden. Or find someone who loved their car and then fuck it up. And it's like, well, it's easy to get someone angry. I wanted to do stuff that left people thinking, what the fuck is that about? And then there was an excuse. I'd only get arrested when I was abroad, weirdly. So the three times I got arrested was I filmed something in Bruges, one of my favorite things in Trigger Happy, where I love Bruges anyway, so any excuse to go to Belgium. And there were these tours, these horse and cart tours that went around Belgium. And I saw them and I thought, I've got to be a guide on one of those. And that ended up so long that it only appeared in full length on a Trigger Happy DVD. But basically I took the place of the guide in Bruges, and I knew nothing about Bruges. I don't think anyone knows anything about Bruges. The Windows. And, uh, and basically, it was just, again, by chance, because we could have had terrible people, but the first woman that sat in was, no offense to Americans, I'm married to an American-Canadian, but she was appalling. And she goes, hi, just take me around Bruges. I go, okay, okay, lady, I will take you around Bruges. And we just went round and round the roundabout. And I go, and of course, shop there, you can see the windows. And if you look there, lady, what is she? I think is she a pretty special window. And, I, and to be fair to her, it took her about nine ways around. She finally goes, are all you going to talk about windows? I go, lady, please do not disrespect the windows here in Bruges. So she was great. But on that same trip, uh, I then thought, well, unlike the That Shit tour, I thought I'd better justify being in Bruges. So I had an English policeman's outfit. So I started wandering around trying to arrest Belgians for English, I hadn't really thought through the joke, uh, for trying to arrest Belgians for English offences. It was, it was a rubbish joke, and we were immediately arrested and taken off. And similarly, when I was in New York, I dressed as the spy. We had a joke where I dressed as a sort of Inspector Gadget spy and go, you, you, know, you, have, you know, you have the documents, the cars fly backwards over my house. And we did it on the Empire State Building. I thought it would be great. 
So I went up top of the Empire State Building, and there's a woman looking out, and I come up and go, uh, you have sheer briefcase? And she just went absolutely mental. It was just after 9-11, so people were a bit more security conscious. And uh, I was weirdly not arrested by the American police, but I was arrested. The Empire State Building, like Disneyland, has its own police and its own jail cell. So I was briefly imprisoned in the Empire State Building for a while, which was quite fun. So, yeah, I've got to tell you about the one joke in Bruges that I've always wanted to do, but because of weather, I've never managed to do. But when we were in Bruges, there were all these rental bikes everywhere, and it, they were very, like, obvious bikes. They were, could only be in Bruges, quite wide handles, and had signs on it. And the first time I went to Bruges, I said, I know exactly what I want to do, and I got someone to do it. And the joke was, I wanted to rent a bike, and then I wanted it to rain, and then I wanted to go back the next day with a tiny, tiny version of the, exactly the same butt, but done like perfectly. And we had it made and say, I don't know what happened. I left it out in the rain last night and it shrunk. But I've done this now three times. And every time I've been, it's been a fucking heat wave and it hasn't rained. So I'm still waiting to do that joke. But it's kind of like one that in my mind I love doing. So, yeah. Stu, do you want to join us back on stage for the final question of the night, which is going to be to this gentleman down here? Stu, 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 Stu. Go on, Stu. Uh, make it a good one, my friend. Oh, no pressure. Sorry. Uh, Sorry. Prob- probably going to be slightly adolescent. Um, but, um, so, I quite liked Happy Hour. I love Happy Hour. Nobody really talks about it. I don't really no, hear don't. you talk about it that much. Well, I don't talk about it because even though it literally was the precursor for Idiot Abroad and all those fucking celeb travel shows. If I do talk about it, it looks like I'm bitter. And I am bitter, so I can't talk about it. But my whole point about that show, when I did Happy Hour, was that, A, I love travel shows. And, but when there was that moment where telly started to be transparent and you had to tell the truth in telly, but the travel show was the last lie. So you'd have Michael Palin going around the world and they'll be like, oh, my God, if we don't get to Alexandria train station by 8 o'clock and get that train, we're going to miss our connection. And it's all very tense. And then there'd be a shot of the train leaving Alexandria. And you're thinking, well, who the fuck filmed that then? The, the door opening with the people already inside yeah. the house. And, and, and in the same sense, you'd have, you know, um, Paul Merton doing his thing, you know, going around the world. And he'd go, so we met our fixer in the insect market in, in Phnom Penh, and they pretend to bump into each other. You're like, for fuck's sake, you know the producer introduced you the night before, and they said, where should we meet this interesting? So the whole point about, Trigger, about Happy Hour was, hey, go around the world, get someone to pay me to travel, but take the piss out of all those shows and say that you only ever arrive or leave in a town when it's sunset. We all know it's crap. We all know travel shows are glorified, but be honest about it. How close? So the, the question really... I oh, okay, sorry. Was, ...was, so Deep South or in Australia, yeah. I, mean, how, I mean, how skewered did you actually get? Uh, or did you just... You mean how fucked? Yeah. Or, oh. how, or, how, or did you just poodle back to a Hilton afterwards? And, well, uh, that was the nightmare, <laughs> though, because the joy normally as a comedian blagging a travel show is like, fucking excellent. We're going to travel around the world, and then when it finishes at five, we can all go and get pissed. But this, because we had to drink the shit in the day, Pete and I were off our faces. So we'd just go back to the, the hotel, fall asleep, and the crew would go out and get pissed. The most pissed I ever got was in Russia. So Russia, if you look at it, Russia per head in the world has the most alcoholics in the world. I mean, they are literally 90% alcoholic. They are, there's something in the Russian soul that makes them want to drink. But they drink so much 
that they don't have bars. They don't have... You know, it's not like you go to Moscow, there's loads of bars. They haven't got time for that shit. They buy a bottle of vodka, neck it, and pass out in the street. Beer, and this is true, though. Beer is a soft drink in, in Russia. I mean, it's a real problem. So when we went to Russia, it was just after Gorbachev had realized that one of the big problems with trying to have glasnost and trying to restart the Russian economy was they were alcoholics. So he banned vodka. So the Russians thought, fuck you. And they went to the supermarkets. No joke would start drinking perfume. So they had to ban perfume. But it's not a joke. I mean, they genuinely did this. And there's this tradition in Russia called Samagon, which is Russian moonshine. And it's what Russians used to make. And so we, when we got to Russia, we met this guy in St. Petersburg who was making Samagon. And Samagon is the closest to 100% alcohol you can have. I think it was 96%. So we turn up in this guy's house. And we're like, this is so exciting. And we're like Id idiot Brits thinking, I'm going to down this point. We have little things like that. And they're like having bread. We're like, fuck this. We're Brits. I have one, nothing. I have two. And honestly, I've never done methamphetamine, I swear. But I kind of <laughs> suddenly thought, oh, my God, I understand what it's about. I understand why Russians take the world. And then I can't remember the next 24 hours. And they were filming it. And apparently, I went back to my hotel in St. Petersburg. When I arrived in reception, I set fire to a, I started a small bonfire in the reception. I have no memory of it at all. So that was the most... So no, we got properly pissed all the way through. I mean, I'm not proud of it, but it's what we did for you guys. Dom, on the subject of fire, why don't we end on the story of the green room experience between yourself and Gomez, where you had them play your show, This Is Dom Jolly? Well, actually, yeah, that was about the stage that I'm feeling now. I'd had a little bit too much to drink. One of the joys of my spoof chat show at the BBC was even if no one else understood it, I got my favorite bands to come and play. So I had Ian Brown, I had the Waterboys, I had Gomez, I had James. And Gomez, I really liked. I don't know if anyone remembers Gomez. They were kind of this very nerdy northern band, but who just had this guy who sang, who when you heard him, you thought he was an 89-year-old black blues guy. But actually, it was just this... He looked like Richard Osman. I mean, it was like... It was incredible. But anyway, so Gomez came on, and they played, and it was all great. And I was trying to be cool afterwards and like, thanks guys so much. And it was, I never get excited by comedians, but musicians. I was like in the green room, I was like, they were like, thank you for having me on. I get no thank you. And they were like musicians. So they were rolling up massive reefers. And I was like, hey, I'm cool. I'll smoke a reefer with you. So I'm like, no, no, no. They go, do you smoke? Like, of course I do. And I went like that. So I don't know what they were smoking, but it was so strong that after two puffs, I was just off my face. And all I remember is I was wearing my suit still. And I went, well, anyway, thank you very much. And I think I thought the reefer was a pen, and I put it into my pocket, <laughs> put it away. I go, anyway, that'll be enough for now. And the lead singer Gomez goes, you're on fire. And I go, well, thank you very much. He goes, no, genuinely, you're on fire. And that's when my nipple got third-degree burns, and I ran out. So it's not a joke. That's how uncool I was. That was great. So Gomez probably won't remember it. But, yeah, that's how good it got. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, on behalf of Dom, Stu and myself, thank you very much for coming out tonight. I hope you've had a wonderful evening. Well, um, who's had better? I've never had better, So Dom. now we've got to do a meet and greet. What does that mean? So what we're going to do, we're going to go and urinate. I'm going to run away, get in a and, cab, and then and we're going to meet and greet. <laughs> we're going to make it fun. It's going to be a sat-nav thing. You're going to have to... F no, we It's will. more hide-and-seek yeah. than meet yeah. and greet. So there's a little sort of blue merch area at the back of the room on the right. If you want to wear the guy in the blue shirt is taking a heroic swing But let's not make there. it like... Because obviously if no one turns up for the meet and greet, it's going to be really bad. And if there's loads of people, I'll react badly and be really rude to you. So let's just... I'm, we're all going to go for a piss. Yeah. And then we'll come out and have a drink. Just be cool. There we just go. Just be fine. I'm and just human like you. 
Yeah? Should we play it like that? Let's play it like yeah. that. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, please, one more time, round of applause for Mr. Don Jolly tonight. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.